What's good, y'all? My name is Jonathan Dumas, and this is the Real Talk with Dumas podcast, where I have real conversations with the people I see every day because we don't know what we miss until we miss them. Now, on to the guest. I have another two-parter for y'all. You know I love those cliffhangers. And this week, I had the chance to connect with one of my best friends, the, the, y'all, Reverend Dr. Isaiah Young. Z and I have been co-workers, conference co-presenters. We've hooped together. I mean, all of it. This dude is family, and he is one of my bros. He even has his own bio, y'all. He hooked me up with a bio. I didn't even have to write it. This is what he says. He is a contemplative Christian Pentecostal minister, practical theologian, and international wisdom teacher who is passionate about works of peace, justice, and intercultural community. Isaiah has experience serving in a variety of leadership positions within nonprofit educational, and religious institutions, as well as in consulting roles with executive leaders seeking organizational transformation. He continues to publish research related to issues at the intersection of practical and pastoral theology, spiritual care, mysticism, spirituality, and intercultural interreligious studies. In this episode, we talk about all of that and a little bit more. We also talk about his own multicultural, multiracial identity and how that has played a role in the past year, the intersectionality of religion and race, and how we are choosing to overcome white supremacy. This was a really, really good episode, y'all. I highly recommend that you do something relaxing or just sit and chill and listen and digest the knowledge that Z drops here. All right, y'all. Here's Isaiah. And I'm just going to go ahead and let you describe yourself because I don't know how to describe you. Like all the jobs you have, the stuff you do, I don't know how to describe you. So go ahead. You you describe who is, who is Isaiah being, Young. Human being, first and foremost. Uh, you know, um, I think for me, it's an interesting question because identity has always been something that I've, I've uh like I, I never fit in a lot of places and uh, so when people ask who am I you know uh, it's, it's a complicated answer I think for many of us it's more complicated than we often think but um, mm. you know my, my family is both immigrants uh, both my mom uh, side of the family and my dad's side of the family are immigrants from Malaysia and Mexico and uh, they both came to the country um, and uh, we're, we're poor we're really poor um, and experience a lot of racism and oppression uh, because of the color of their skin, because of their culture, because of their socioeconomic status. Um, and the way they spoke with an accent was different. And so for me, uh, that informs a lot about, you know, my experience in, in terms of wanting to be a part of bridging communities and people together. If there was one thing I could mm. sum up, like what, I, what I'm committed to, what I'm about, um, it is that I, I want to help bring folks together that otherwise wouldn't come together. So whether that's around culture or interest or class or gender or sexual orientation and other, other categories, um, just bringing folks together to share life, to, to get to know one another's experience and be able to support one another. I mean, that's what I think, uh, I feel passionate about and, uh, I get to do that through, through writing and teaching. I'm, I'm assistant professor right now in Berkeley, California, um, I get to do that in uh, religious spaces as I'm a minister, uh, a Christian minister. So I do that within uh, some religious spaces, do that in nonprofits, you know, whether it's with organizers and activists um, and educators. Uh, but like I say, if it could really be boiled down to one thing, it's about uh, bringing, bringing people together 
um, to get to know one another, to support one another. Mm, that's good. I'm curious because we've talked before in your kind of your work journey. Um, you mentioned that you were a minister and I know a little bit of that background, but like more specifically, like how did you come to the work that you're doing now of being a professor, of being, you know, in this equity, justice and social justice work that you currently do in the many facets that you do? Yeah, you know, I like I said, I wasn't, um, I, you know, I never saw a lot of people like me, not only because my family comes from two very different countries <laughs> that most people don't have <laughs> friends. You know, a lot of people in Mexico aren't necessarily connected to people in Malaysia and vice versa. Um, it's not something mm-hmm. you hear often. And so um, so I never really like saw a lot of people who look like me or had my experience being multiracial, uh, being uh, multicultural. Uh, in in certain professions or industries and so like growing up i never had this idea of like oh i'm gonna do this or i'm gonna do that um and so the way i kind of fell into this specific work is is actually by a lot of trial and error you know i i Mm. started working in a church um right when i was in college working full-time at a a predominantly white church and uh, had some good good times there but also faced um my own i guess uh insecurities about how i fit in and how i could show up and be myself there and so I uh, transitioned out of that role after a few years, um, did grad school, and kind of while I was in grad school, just worked at a, a few different uh, liberal arts universities with college students because I was I was uh, already working with that age, and it was kind of a natural connection. And so um, I got a job working uh, within uh, diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion work, and uh, that really opened up a lot of learning for me, uh, a lot of... Um, needed healing that I, I wasn't even aware of while at the mm. same time I was studying in grad school, um, you know, critical theory. And I was studying ways in which religion is co-opted by supremacy, um, and is, and perpetuate supremacy and the ways we can, we can really unlearn some of that. And so that was all kind of coming to a head and I never really planned on being a professor at all. Um, uh, I was just doing my, my graduate education for my own learning really at the end of the day. And, um, mm. I got this job, uh, offered to me uh, through a colleague who who uh, recommended my name to be put in for it, and uh, I, I didn't think much much of it, but I uh, went through the interview process and, and got offered the position, and I feel really thankful um, to have it because um, I think it's so important uh, in the world we live, in the day we live, to find spaces and communities that encourage uh, the pursuit of justice, and um, I think if I look back on the last 10 years, even though it's been in a lot of ups and downs, that's been something that that I've I've been looking for, even if I didn't always have the language. And through meeting mm. a lot of great people, you know, such as yourself and others, um, you know, I really attribute where I am today because of those relationships that that kind of challenged me, encouraged me, uh, gave me a different perspective, kept me down the path, like I said, of justice. And so I'm happy to be at a school right now that um, is the first uh, seminary, uh, you know, that ordained uh, and recognized uh, folks from the LGBTQ plus community in uh, mm. ministry. And so we have a, a full center devoted to the intersection of LGBTQ experiences and uh, religion, and which is amazing. And we continue to uh, encourage other folks to think about that um, through, through the institution I'm a part of. But I, like I said, I'm just happy to be at a community where I feel like I'm continually encouraged to grow, to learn, to transform. Amazing, amazing. Um, it's funny. You said you weren't planning on becoming a prof, but you are now like, what were you, what was the plan? What were you planning to do? 
You know, growing up, all I like to do is play basketball. Yeah, I think I think you and yeah. I we we connected a lot on that because uh, that was one of the things that I I just love to do. And so I knew I wasn't good enough to play like pro or anything, but I just yeah. I, I felt like if I could take it as long as I could, you know, then that would be a good thing. And so I ended up playing a year at a very small uh, liberal arts school, and and uh, you know, what didn't play very much, but was on the team and uh, realized that that soon wasn't wasn't going to be something for me. And so. Um, like I said, I, I got into full-time ministry and that was good. I, I, I was really thankful for being in a position where I could help and serve people, but the kind of organizations I was a part of was still very exclusive, was still very oppressive. And so I didn't know it at the time, but I knew that something wasn't right for who I was and what I wanted to be about. And so that's kind of how I got to where I am today by that trial and error of like, no, nah, this, this isn't right. I got to keep, I got to keep moving on to something else that that's more inclusive, more expansive. Z, so you mentioned earlier, um, as you were describing yourself, who you were as a person, that there were some spaces that were um, upholding supremacy, that that even in some of the work that you moved along doing, that there was like imp- oppressive environments. Can you tell me a little bit more about like what that oppression is or what that oppressive yeah. environment is? What is upholding supremacy? Yeah, for sure. Part of what I think the structures of upholding supremacy that I'm talking about was that I realized that in these institutions that uh, seemed to communicate a sense of welcoming and belonging for everybody and all kinds of experiences, that the experiences were actually catered to a very specific group of people. And, and that is cisgendered, heterosexual, wealthy, white men who are Christians. And that mm-hmm. all of our um, uh, language all of our you know, jokes, all of our funds and strategies and marketing was catered to capturing the heart, the imagination of that very specific kind of person. And Mm-mm. before I, bef- while I didn't know it back then, I realized that what they were asking me to do was to join them in uplifting this image of what it means to be human as a cisgender, heterosexual, wealthy, white Christian man to be kind of the epitome of, of what we're all supposed to be. And not only was it is it all those um, characteristics in terms of group identities, but it was this idea of self-sufficiency. You know, this idea mm. that we can all make it if we just work hard enough, that we don't need other people, that we're individual separate units from one another, that we all have the individual uh, right and, and, and supposed um, opportunity to achieve you know, the American dream. And then that was all couched in spiritual language. So like in these religious institutions, uh, anytime that that narrative was perpetuated, it was giving credit to this God that supposedly wanted Mm. to bring these blessings on this person. When in reality, it had nothing to do with what I understand the divine to be like and had everything to do with um, promoting a certain kind of way of being in the world. And like I said, when I was Mm. part of those institutions, I didn't know that in terms of I didn't have the language or the consciousness, but I felt it in my body. You know, I went through several years of depression, uh, several years of trying to change who I was and what my what my background had to offer, so that I could mirror and match. You know, what I was seeing for the quote unquote successful ones. You know, in these spaces, and if it was uh, people who weren't uh, white, if it wasn't men, it was people who acted in a very specific way. Um, that assimilated, you know, to, to the, to, mm. to, um, the, those in power. Um, so 
it was toxic, you know. It 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 was a it was a very tough environment for me. And I will say that there's amazing people in some of these organizations that I love and I cherish. None of it was uh, always intentional, you know, done to me to like, you know, people were, were trying to, you know, dehumanize me essentially, but without knowing it, there was such a ignorance, such a um, lack of awareness with what was taking mm. place that even their good intentions were actually um, destructive to, to my soul and to, to ultimately the call I feel like I have in the world, which is to allow people to be their authentic selves, to accept and to embrace you know, diversity and language and culture and the different wisdoms that come from that. And so, um, yeah. So like, I remember like when I would get up, uh, and I would speak, you know, in some of these organizations and I was young and people were like, Oh, we can't wait to hear Isaiah speak. And as soon as I would come down, I would always get people to ask me, so where are you from? You know, they would get to mm. people from people from within these communities would say, well, where are you from? You know, how long have you lived in the United States? And I'd be like, I was born here. <laughs> like, um, wow. I've never lived anywhere else. And and then they would say things like, wow, your English is just so good. Like, where did you mm. learn English? Where did you learn to speak English so well? And I was again, like I was born here in Portland, Oregon. Like I've only lived in the United States. I don't even speak another yeah. language that well, you know, Spanish a little bit. Um, but it's not, it's not very, I don't speak Spanish, uh, with, with high fluency. And so these experiences were common. Sometimes you just laugh them off. You know, sometimes you just, you recognize people don't mean ill behind it. So you try to just, you know, forget about it. But there are these little daily microaggressions that take place in these spaces that you look around, mm -hmm. nobody else sees what's happening, only you. And so you feel even more isolated and alone and exhausted from this, this um, this hamster wheel of, of of trying to perform in a certain kind of way, and then it all couched in the spiritual language. So, as a theologian, as somebody who 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 spends a lot of time talking about God, you know, which some people might think is is a waste of time, I think it's really important because religion is one of the strongest motivators that people have in their lives. You know, regardless if mm -hmm. someone believes in God or not, if you just look at how people live, religion is, is if not the greatest, one of the strongest motivators that justifies behaviors in the world. And so mm -hmm. if that religion is toxic, if that religion um, is perpetuating oppression and supremacy, then that those kinds of behaviors are going to be justified in the name of God. And so, uh, mm. and then people won't be, uh, they won't even be open to seeing something different because they think some God wants this. And if we speak about Christianity just for a second, which I think is super important in the U.S. context, because so much of the oppression that's taken place in the U.S. context has been done in the name of Christianity, um, we have to recognize that that even within the, the Bible, the holy text of Christianity, there's so much rationale for violence. And so without mm. a real important critical awareness of maybe how that was taking place, why that was taking place, and what an alternative reading of some of those things are, people can look at the Bible and say, see, look, we're justified to commit violence. We're justified to um, racial superiority, ethnic superiority, because look, it's here in this text. And so it's very important, mm. um, something I'm committed to, if we really want to build a world where people can come together in mutuality and injustice, we have to dismantle some of this false religion uh, within Christianity, uh, in the United States context, but in other contexts as well, the power of religion is, is so important to look at um, uh, as we kind of navigate the, these issues. I know I just yeah, said a lot. Absolutely so. no, <laughs> no. That's but all of it's good stuff though. So <laughs> I mean, I I think you put language to something that 
um, a lot of folks have been trying to figure out and navigate. I think even specifically in 2020, I think others are starting to ask questions. I mean, I've had conversations within the last two, three weeks who are wrestling with this question of how do I continue to do this work, specifically in church settings, um, in nonprofit settings, in predominantly white institutions? Like, how do I still navigate this space while experiencing these, quite honestly, traumatic things? And so I think you put a lot of language to a lot of the things that they were feeling. And yeah. All right. So speaking of like 2020, um, and the, the year that it, that it was, um, what is your, what is your Asian American identity meant for how you navigated life pre pandemic and like how you're navigating it now? Yeah. I mean, it's a super important question. I mean, um, it depends where I'm at. Right. But I would say for, uh, people when I'm not in Asian spaces, people, um, racialize me into an Asian or Asian American category. When I'm in Asian spaces, I tend to be racialized as an outsider. So, Mm -hmm. um, I, so my experience is one where I constantly, I think it's important for me and others who are maybe multiracial to recognize that the way we experience race is very different space to space. And I think race always is being constructed in different ways. And so I would encourage others who are interested in that journey to, to recognize how we're always being raced in different ways, even if we're not multiracial. But for me in particular, um, this last year, uh, was, was, was saddening, um, from the perspective of the anti-Asian rhetoric, uh, that was taking place since the beginning of the pandemic, um, with the, uh, number 45 calling the coronavirus, the China virus and mm. continuing to, um, spread a narrative of anti-Asian sentiment that has been part of this country um, for a long, long time. Uh, We look at the Chinese Exclusion Act in the 1800s. We look at all the um, racism against uh, Japanese folks uh, with the concentration um, camps and, excuse me, the internment camps uh, within uh, the United States uh, in the the 20th century and um, all in the Vietnam War and we could look at other instances where um, there has been anti-Asian sentiment that serves the purposes of white supremacy. And so what happened mm-hmm. in 2020 was just another chapter in that book that's being written about white supremacy in the United States uh, by those in power. And so it was really hard for me as someone who um, is part of the AAPI community, uh, Asian, Asian American, Pacific Islander community, um, to see some of the that that language because it it only galvanized violence to be enacted against people this last year. I mean, I don't know if you heard about you know in the early times of the of the uh, pandemic, just beginning in 2020, there was a uh, Asian American middle schooler in uh, Southern California who got bullied and then beaten up um, because mm. uh, someone within the school said that you know this person is the one who's bringing the virus into. Uh, the country. And this was before there was even one case uh, of coronavirus in Southern California. And so yeah. that sentiment, that rhetoric was already started before uh, the, the coronavirus. It was just exacerbated in that instance. And so, and that's not the first, there's been, there's been a number of violent um, actions that have been taken against uh, members of the AAPI community within the last year. And it's heartbreaking, you know, it's heartbreaking to see that for, you know, and the media doesn't really talk about it that much. Um, 
you know, and it's not to say that, that there aren't other issues in other racialized communities, you know, within the brown community, the black community, indigenous community, there's other issues. So it's not, it's not, it's not pitting them against each other. It's just saying that shining a spotlight to say white supremacy destroys all of us. And Mm-mm. when we see, uh, the anti-Asian, uh, sentiment happening, um, you know, so many people say, well, Asian Americans are successful. You know, look at, look at the quote unquote data. Um, we see the model minority myth, uh, that takes place. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, is that, uh, AAPI, uh, folks are very different from one another. There's, there's so many different layers and it's not a monolith. And so we have to recognize while there's power in grouping together for organizing and for mobilizing social action, we also have to recognize that, um, that there's, that, that, even though you can look at some data and say, well, certain folks in the AAPI community are quote unquote successful, there's a large group of people um, that that are not part of that success, that are in poverty, that are yeah. experiencing systemic oppression. And so um, these are things that that often don't get talked about. And uh, But there are folks who are working on the ground. And so I'd love in this podcast that we can continue to, to shed a spotlight and say, no, these, these issues are real. And there's people that are outside of the AAPI community who are um, joining in solidarity with that. Um, and so one of the things I was encouraged by um, is there's a, uh, a website that came up um, called stopaapihate.org. I don't know if you've seen mm. that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I have. It's and, good. It's real good. Yeah, and so I just encourage folks to check that out, um, you know, talking about some of what I just shared and encouraging folks in ways they can get involved. Uh, but I think that, you know, one of the ways white supremacy works is that it tries to, to pit folks against each other. And so I'm just thankful for a time where we can encourage, you know, cross-racial solidarity to talk about issues and to work together um, because it's so important if we're going to see a day different than white supremacy. Yeah, and the other way that this last year has really impacted me uh, is being part of the uh, Latinx community, being Chicano. Uh, my my mom uh, grew up as a farm worker and uh, like I said in pretty intense poverty and so often was working in conditions where she wasn't safe she wasn't um, she didn't have benefits or protections from the state or from her employer and so one of the things that I've noticed uh, within this time of pandemic when a lot of people uh, with uh, job privilege, get to work from home and stay safe. There's also a huge number of folks, primarily who are um, migrants and undocumented folks who are working out in unsafe conditions where they weren't able to adequately social distance. They weren't given uh, the right protective equipment. And then they were blamed um, because of their culture saying that they were the cause of the spread of the virus. When in reality, Mm. it was a systemic oppression that um, basically saw these lives of undocumented workers, primarily from the Latinx community, as disposable, as less valuable, even though they were supposedly applauded as essential workers out there in you know, the farm and the fields and the, and the meatpacking plants and all kinds of things. Uh, they were not mm-hmm. treated with any kind of respect or dignity, and so many unnecessary lives were lost. And so um, being part of the Latinx community as well, um, it's really uh, been difficult for me to uh, see and, and hear when uh, I find how um, our country continues to put so many lives at risk. Uh, we talk about how we need to shut things down to keep everyone safe, and yet people are still working and forced to work because of poverty and because of the only jobs that are available um, are these jobs where where they're not being actually looked out for. Mm. Yeah, I and I remember the countless stories of like the 
you mentioned the meatpacking um, uh, meatpacking instance. Like that happened um, in a predominantly um, predominantly uh, Latinx community. Like a lot of these jobs were interconnected, and they said, uh, and I remember just listening to an NPR um, interview, and they said some people were sick, and they they said, well, you need to come or you're gonna lose your job. Like the, you had no, there was no recourse, there was nothing, and like I think that was ground zero for that entire state. America, America is just like it's it's something else. Like it is something else. How American capitalism, I'll say that because you can lift these folks up as heroes of people that are doing the great work essential workers, um, you're doing this stuff, treat them like trash, don't pay them well, but speak these these deep words and kind words, but you won't do the necessary actions to make sure that they are cared for, like universal health care, like making sure that, um, you know, even their kids who they're going to, working so hard and taking care of them, providing um, accessible um, child care, it's just, un- it's just unbelievable. Um, that in the living, same breath, and they're and already some of them are already living in fear because of the fear of yes. um, why they moved here, the fear of deportation, yep. um, you know, yep. the fear of of so many um, of their life being at stake. They just don't talk about it, and so many folks just won't talk about it because the system is built in such a way where they're encouraged to keep quiet so that they keep their jobs, and so mm. um, and so it's targeted oppression, and so you know these again for me when I look back on twenty twenty. Um, it was obviously horrible, you know, seeing all the news about uh, police brutality um, and the ways in which it was directed towards the black community. And yet um, I was also becoming more keenly aware of all the different inequities that face uh, different racialized groups. And so I think we're all needed in this to come together and to, to be in solidarity. I'm, I'm curious about this because I've actually thought about this multiple times as it's come up and, and you're multiracial and multicultural. Uh, and so... I'm curious in, in your thoughts of this too. Uh, I mentioned uh, in a few episodes ago about like the uh, the oppression Olympics and how you know sometimes within minority groups or marginalized groups that there is some level of competition about oppression and and I'm curious of what your take on that is. Maybe even how you even experience that as you're talking and discussing two different um, experiences from both sides of your family. Yeah, I just think the weird thing for me about it is, um, and I think uh, different multiracial people experience this in different ways, but maybe similar overall generalized, which is to say that in different spaces, you're, you're simply seen as the other, you know? So if you are multiracial, mm. um, when you're on one with one side of your family or one group of folks, you're seen as an outsider there <laughs> racially, and then you go to the other group and you're seen as an outsider there. So there's really nowhere you can go and say, oh, that's a racialized group that I totally can, that, that, that totally see me as one of their own. And so that experience is very disorienting on the flip of it. Although it's really hard and difficult um, on the flip of it, you actually then are opened to experience the sufferings of other people in ways that maybe others aren't. So because I'm not fully in one group or the other, whether cause I'm not seen that way for them or because I know my own background, you know, I, I am less tempted to just focus on one issue over the other. And the reality is, is that all these issues are connected. And so mm-hmm. my response to that is, is like for multiracial people, they're definitely not the answer to a post-racial United States, you know, as sometimes they get pitted <laughs> to be, but, uh, they, they can, um, 
sometimes use that experience to develop um, more compassion to different groups in, in some ways. But I would say for anybody who's experienced oppression of any kind, you'd hope that in through that experience, then they're open to the other kinds of oppressions that, that, that they may not have experienced firsthand, but that they can, they know what it's like to be excluded. And so um, they feel open to that conversation. So yeah, I think it's really an important population to think about because the multiracial population is growing rapidly within the United States. And oftentimes, uh, the dynamics still don't get talked about in terms of the ways, the complexities that multiracial people feel. They're just, they're just seen as monoracial, so most people just accept, you know, I'm this or that, whatever people call me as. But the problem with that is it does a kind of interior violence or silencing to our own experience mm. as multiracial people. And so it's really important to have spaces where um, people can begin to share what that feels like and begin to then, as another way to expose the oppression of white supremacy, because supremacy of any kind doesn't allow for any kind of um, graying of the space, doesn't allow for any kind of complexity or nuance. And so uh, I think to be able to tell those stories um, is a way in which we can better identify and resist, you know, the way supremacy tries to limit our experience and silence or cut us off from, from the ways that we move and act in the world. And then the, the last piece of that, and I wrote my dissertation on this so I could keep talking about it, but I won't. <laughs> is to simply say, is to simply say too that for multiracial people, we also I would encourage folks to not use as an excuse to opt out of understanding the dynamics mm. of racialized groups because multiracial people ask you that yeah multiracial <laughs> people too could feel like oh well you know I am not totally in this group I'm not totally in that group and so race doesn't really matter you know racial groupings don't really matter and that's not true because racialization impacts us all the time and so uh, multiracial people need to be keenly aware of not only how their experience is different, but also then how they can use those experiences in support of, in solidarity of the monoracialized experiences that other folks have. Um, so there has to be that kind of um, teaming up, that solidarity together to to confront the white supremacy. So, it, you know, these are, these are very interesting conversations and, and I think still under discussed. And so I'm hoping uh, in the coming days that there can be more conversations on it so that we can um, find ways to, to live different. I think one of the things maybe it's helpful for people to hear is, is that maybe perhaps race can function more on a spectrum than we realize. So similarly, mm -hmm. similarly to how we have a spectrum of sexuality or sexual orientation, perhaps, I would wonder if we thought about race, how it shows up in our daily lives on a kind of spectrum, like on a scale of like how how much are people socializing us into whiteness or anti-blackness if those were kind of two ends of the spectrum right or or i guess you know pro-blackness and white supremacy right being two different ends of the spectrum how we can begin to navigate one confronting the white supremacy doing something different and also recognizing that race, the category of race in and of itself, is fiction. It's socially constructed to place in us a category. And so we have to find individual ways of resisting, uh, interpersonal ways of resisting, group ways of resisting, institutional ways of resisting. So we have to be really aware of how this works. Because if we're thinking that, oh, we can just stop talking about it, or we can just show everybody how dumb it is, and then it'll leave, it's not true. Um, it has to be continually and consciously resisted um, and interrogated so that we can live um, without these kind of constraints, the ways that race tries to uh, pin us down and get us to conform to white supremacy.
um, thinking about race as far as like a spectrum and not necessarily like because the last few the a few episodes ago I talked about like labels and stereotypes and so um, the way that race was even constructed mm-hmm. was to was in anti blackness mm-hmm. and I, I, maybe even in um, anti indigenous um, as well and so like the darker your skin the badder you are the more inferior you are as we move into like a more what's the word fluid dynamic what, what would be the words here yeah like um idea of what race is mm-hmm. um and understanding that not dismissing race because i don't think the fluidity of it dismisses it but it broadens what it actually means and what yes. it what it what who you are as a as a as a human being exactly. so and that, i would say that, and i would say you ha- yeah you have to know the logic so that you can disrupt it mm-hmm. right and so like the idea that um you know racism tries to racism has a certain imagination for what's possible as a human being and it and it creates a certain kind of way of being and an invitation for what you can do what you can't do you have to recognize all the different ways that that limits us as a human being so that we can move beyond that we can disrupt that we can resist that we can live our full humanity out and so uh to just not talk about it and act like it's not there, you know, colorblindness or, you know, naivete of, of, an, uh, of a kind of uh, naive idealism will actually oftentimes just perpetuate the, 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 uh, the racism. That's why we have mm-hmm. to become conscious and aware of it so that we, uh, you know, can find ways to, to kind of uh, live different. And so, uh, because we're we're totally socialized and encouraged to not to to just adhere to it to conform to it, you know your position in society is celebrated and you're you're given more power in organizations the more you accept it, and so that's why we have to become really honest about what's happening so that we can continue to um, show the flaws of uh, of what of what the logic is and then live creatively different and and I want when I say that I'm not talking about just resisting in terms of an anti. Because in some ways, I think the anti or pro binary just reinforces everything. What I mean by resisting yeah. it is like you totally like disrupt the whole like dualism of it. And I think in that way, um, you know, when we love deeply, when we break out of stereotypes, when we're willing to tell the truth um, with courage, with you know, not chained into fear, when we exercise compassion for all of life. You know, all these things break out of the dualisms, not just a for or against, but a completely different way. And I think that's what we're after. All right. So that was part one with my boy Z. Now, I forgot to tell y'all that Z always be doing two things, preaching and dropping knowledge. And he was definitely doing both in this episode. Um, So y'all will have a week to digest that. Um, Part two is coming out next week. But I would love to hear y'all's takeaways and thoughts. So hit me up on Instagram at RTWD Podcast or email me at RTWDpodcast at gmail.com. I would love, love, love to hear from you. This podcast was produced by myself, Jonathan Dumas. Additional production help by the incomparable Lindsay Dumas with music by the oh-so-talented Mr. Tony Deras. And don't forget to like, subscribe, share, and leave a review. It really helps folks discover the show. Till next week, y'all. Peace.